This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. Uh, Pastor Zach is still on vacation. He's coming back this week, so you're stuck with me once again. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Kyle Culbertson. I'm the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Um, And a little bit about me, uh, if you haven't caught on yet in any of the conversations with me, I am a big fan of my alma mater, The Ohio State University. Um, But as a fan of Ohio State, there is one thing in particular that is required. Uh, you, are, you have to hate the University of Michigan. But as a Buckeye, I actually just broke the number one rule of graduating from Ohio State. You can never say their name. You do not refer to them by that title. You can refer to them as the Wolverines. You can refer to them as that team up north. You can refer to them as that state up north. Or my particular favorite, you just don't talk about them and ignore them because they're not that good and they don't really matter. But growing up in Ohio, you're thrust into this rivalry. You're you're given an opportunity from the time that you're little to choose, and you have to make a choice. You can't be neutral. You have to be for or against Ohio State. Uh, In choosing this, it is a rivalry that divides friendships and family. Uh, There's flags that you often see growing up in Ohio that would be out front of people's houses, and half of it would be an Ohio State logo, half of it would be that team up north, Um, and it would say on it, a house divided. Well, that term, a house divided, describes really well where we're at in 2 Samuel. As we jump into chapter 15 this morning, we're going to realize that God had made a proclamation last week to David, a punishment for his sins. God had told him that I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Well, apparently evil goes by the name Absalom, David's son. Absalom has been on the campaign trail for quite some time trying to take the throne from his father. He's been walking around, shaking hands, kissing babies, marching around in a chariot while he has 50 men running in front of him. He's been telling anyone that will listen how unjust King David is and how much more justice there would be if Absalom was king, how much better it could be. And he's seeking to win public approval. But unlike many of the politicians of our day, he doesn't want public approval to win an election, but he's trying to start an uprising. And chapter 15 is the culmination of this event. He has gone to Hebron. He has decided that I am king over Israel. He's made this declaration, and all of Israel is turning to him. This leads to a problem for David. You see, for him to be king, he has to kill David. He's coming after him, and so David has to flee his palace, flee Jerusalem. He's on the run. This man that was once in the wilderness and in exile has come to the throne and now is cast out once again. And this must be one of the lowest moments of David's life. He's being hunted by a member of his own family. And so this is a moment of crisis for David. And these moments of crises are things that we experience all the time. It's something that we all understand, that there are highs and lows in life, and those times are hard. Just think of Puerto Rico the last five years. You've got Hurricane Maria, you've got earthquakes, COVID, Hurricane Fiona. Even in your own life, there's other crises in your job, in your family, and in your marriage. All of us go through times of crisis. But the reality is, as God's people, we are given an opportunity to respond to these in a way unlike the rest of the world. And as we look in our text this morning, we see David marching out of Jerusalem. We're going to be given three ways that we are given to respond to crisis in our own life. We're going to see that we are called to respond to it in faith, that we are called to respond to crisis in submission, and we are called to respond to crisis 
and hope. And so those are the three things we're going to be looking at this morning as I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it together. Uh, Beginning chapter 15, starting in verse 13 and reading through verse 30. It says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. Then the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then and pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find it favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace. With your two sons, Ahimeaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back into Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So as we see David's marching out of Jerusalem, the first thing we're going to notice that in times of crisis, we are called to respond to it in faith. Now David is still the Lord's anointed. David is still the king that God has chosen to rule over his people. But Absalom is the king of popular approval. And while many in Israel would have proclaimed up till this point that we are for David, we are for God, we are always going to follow you, we are your servants, now they're presented with an opportunity to make a different choice. This is the first time where the choice actually matters, where they have to prove what faith they have in David as their king. And this reminded me of a story that I remembered my roommate in college telling me. So he... uh, was a big car guy. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He was an aerospace engineering major. And he actually had this opportunity while we were in college to go buy this truck. It was a big F-250. He was really excited about it. Um, but the, he got a great deal because it didn't run. Like, you couldn't start it. You couldn't turn it on. You couldn't drive it. But my roommate was fully confident that he could fix this, this truck. 
And so he went ahead and bought it, and he took an entire year to rebuild the engine from scratch. And so he rebuilt this entire engine, got it running, and it could finally drive once again. And you know the first thing my roommate did with it? He sold it. I remember asking him, what are you doing? You spent all this time, all this money, all this effort in this truck that you were so excited about. Why would you sell it? And my roommate looked at me and he said, well, I sold it because I knew I was the one that built the engine. I'm not going to drive that around. That's dangerous. (laughs) See, for my roommate, the reality was he had full confidence in his abilities until it mattered. See, all of a sudden, his life is the one on the line if he's going to get behind the wheel of this truck, and so he bailed. And much of Israel chooses to be the same. This is a moment where you have to make a choice between David and Absalom. And the wrong choice could mean your life. And so they choose Absalom. They prove that their faith in David wasn't rooted in anything if it was even there. And yet there's one person that we are presented to as David's marching out of the city who proves to have some of the greatest faith in all of Israel. And that's Ittai the Gittite. Notice this man is not an Israelite. This is not one of the people that are God's chosen people. And yet he responds with unshakable faith. This is a man from Gath. This is a place amongst the Philistines. Many of them had come with David when he lived among the Philistines, but Ittai was not one of those. We're told that he had just showed up. He's a recent convert. He had finally found a home in Israel. He'd finally come to Jerusalem after being in exile and wandering around in the wilderness. And yet, so soon after he gets there, he's willing to throw all of his comfort away to take his family back on the road, back into exile, to follow David and to follow the Lord. He's making a bet on the Lord's anointed, even when it looks like the worst bet you could ever make. It's worse than a long shot. Yet Ittai proves to have such great faith. David even tries to discourage him himself. He says, Ittai, you don't have to come with me. Go back. Take your family back to the city. Stay with Absalom. It'll be good for you there. But Ittai says, no, I'm not going back. Wherever the Lord goes and wherever the Lord's anointed goes, I want to follow. He says, whether for death or for life, I'm going with you. Ittai's response to this crisis shows unshakable faith in the Lord to have the victory. But is that how we often respond to our own crisis? It is so hard to have this unshakable faith when it means sacrificing so much. We are so often see our hearts try to be pulled away by the the promises of this world. The things that we think can fix our problems in money or in acceptance or power. These things that we want to go after, these things that look good, these quick solutions. The easy road is often the wide path that leads to destruction. But we are given an opportunity to respond differently than those around us. We are given an opportunity to respond to hardship by putting greater faith in the Lord, to say that we are following Him. It's so tempting when crisis hits you to act like the disciples in John 6, that when times got hard, they turned away and stopped walking with Jesus. But this is an opportunity to respond, not like them, but like the Apostle Peter. That when he is given the same opportunity, he responds to Christ and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. This is the response of Peter, it's the response of Ittai, and it can be our response as well. It should be our response to hardship. We should be those that respond that whether for death or for life, we continue to have faith in God because nothing can take that away from us. 
that we can be assured of the words of Romans 7, that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth or anything else in all creation, no crisis that we could ever go through, no time of hardship could ever separate us from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of God's love, we are able to respond to trials. We are able to respond to moments of crisis like Ittai with unshakable faith. But not only faith, we are also called to respond in humble submission. As we look, David sees two other people come to him, and it's Abiathar and Zadok, two priests. They bring him the ark of God, and they give him an opportunity to take it with him, to take God's presence with him on the road. But David rejects this opportunity, and most likely it's because for David, he remembers, and I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about all the way at the beginning of 1 Samuel, which seems like a really long time ago now. But there was two priests that did this exact same thing, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They were seeking to win a war against the Philistines, and so instead of seeking God's approval and praying and deciding should we go out against these people, they said, no, we're going to go and we're going to take the ark with us and it will be used as a weapon. We've got God with us. We can't be defeated. Just bring him along. And the problem for Hophni and Phinehas is their outlook. See, Hophni and Phinehas believed that they were the dog walkers instead of the dog in comparison to God. And the problem with believing this is your perspective on who's in charge. Now, if you've ever been to my house, you probably know that I have a rather large dog named Chachi. If you haven't seen him, you've heard him, and he's probably jumped on you at some point or another if you show up. And Chachi is a big dog. He's 75 pounds, give or take five pounds for some table scraps my daughter keeps giving him. But Chachi looks even bigger than that at times because he's rather tall. And Morgan and I used to live in Columbus, and we lived in an area that we loved, but on the edge of it was some rougher neighborhoods. And typically in these areas, big dogs are not walked. They're not family pets. They are more there for protection. They're guard dogs. And so every time I would walk Chachi in these neighborhoods, you'd get the same reaction. You'd kind of go by, turn a corner, and people go, oh, that's a big dog. That's every, every person, that's a big dog, that's a big dog. And realizing this gave me some comfort. Because I knew that people would respond this way, I felt the comfort to go wherever I wanted in Columbus. As long as I had Chachi with me, he was my safety net. People would leave me alone, I'd be fine. I can walk in any of these neighborhoods. I can take Chachi wherever I want to go, and he's got to come with me, and things will be all right. That's the attitude that Hophni and Phinehas had with the Ark of God. That as long as I just bring him along for the ride, things will work out okay. But David responds differently because he knows that that cost Hophni and Phinehas their life. David's response to the opportunity to take the Ark with him is different. He actually says back to the priest, he says, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, then behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. David's response shows unmistakable humility and submission before God. David responds knowing that he is not the dog walker, but he is the dog in comparison to the Lord. Now, a dog doesn't get to choose when it goes for a walk. A dog doesn't get to choose where it goes for a walk. A dog simply follows its owner that he knows loves him and goes wherever the dog walker takes him. He's at the mercy of his owner, and David understands that he's at the mercy of God in this moment. And so David responds understanding that he knows that this is God's will. 
He knows that God is sovereign and that God is still in control even when everything feels lost. In the midst of hardship, it can feel like God's not in control. So often, it's easy and tempting to believe that God has simply forgotten you, that God doesn't see what's going on in your life, that if he only knew what I'm going through, that he would stop this. Like if God was really in control of this situation, I wouldn't have to walk through these hard things. But the truth is, God might let us walk through hard things. God will allow things to happen in our life that we can't explain. None of us know the ways of God and none of us can force his hand. The reality is that everything happens is something that God has allowed. But it's also something that he's in control of and none of us ever go unnoticed by him. God's plans are greater than our own because God is in control of everything. God knows all and he sees all. And David knew this. David knew that this moment of him having to walk out of Jerusalem, this time of everything feeling taken from him, David understands is God's will. It's the fulfillment of God's word to him in chapter 12. David understands that this is punishment for his sin, and so he takes the posture of a penitent sinner. He covers his head, and he walks barefoot up the mountain weeping and mourning. But not only that, David commits his future back to God even in this moment. He says that I will only come back if it's God's will. That whatever God's will may be, I'm willing to accept that future. And maybe you're thinking this morning, that's great for David, but God didn't tell me what's going on in my life. I've got this thing going on and God didn't show up three chapters earlier and say, well, this is going to happen to you because of what you've done. The reality is our crises don't come just from our own sin. There are so many times we go through crisis and moments of hardship, and it's not because of your sin, but it's still an opportunity to commit our future to the Lord. It's still an opportunity to believe that a future with God is better than a future without, no matter what that future may be that he's still in charge and he's still sovereign. Submission is hard. Submission is something that flies in the face of what our culture believes and what our culture values. Submission today is almost like a curse word. No one wants to submit. No one should have to submit. We celebrate leaders. We celebrate people that take life by the horns. You don't give up anything unless you get something in return. That's how our world operates. And too often, this bleeds over into our spiritual lives. We believe that we can bargain with the Lord. God, if you would just take this away from me, I'll do this thing. I'll show up more to these Bible studies. I'll, I'll pray more. I'll spend more time in your word if you'll just take this away from me. But do you really believe that God is in control? Do you really believe that his plans are better? Because if you did, we are given an opportunity to respond not only like David, but like Christ. See, it's not wrong to ask for deliverance. Christ comes in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks, take this cup from me. In a moment of intense hardship where he knows he's walking to his death, he asks for deliverance. But he doesn't stop there. He follows it up with, but not my will, but your will be done, Father. How many of us can follow Christ in this opportunity we need to be willing to submit ourselves to God in such a way that we can ask for deliverance. We can ask for God to save us from this thing, to bring us out of this time of trouble and hardship, but we can also commit our future to him like David did, to believe that his ways are better, to submit to a God that knows more than us and whose plans are better than ours. 
and to say, your will be done. We are called in times of hardship to respond in faith and to respond in humble submission. But we're also given a great opportunity to respond in expectant hope. Now, this chapter may feel a little hopeless. Like, where is, where is the hope in David being crushed and walking out of the city barefoot and head covered and weeping? But the reality is that in this moment, we are given a picture of David's hope in the Lord. Because it's in this moment that he actually composed Psalm chapter 3. And when you read Psalm chapter 3, you hear him start out by saying, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David calls God his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head, even in this moment. For a king at this time, your shield is meant to be your army. Your glory is meant to be all the wealth that you've accumulated, your kingdom that you're living in. And you are lifted up as a king because you sit on a throne and rule over all the rest of the people. And yet David in this moment has lost almost all of his army, definitely almost all of his kingdom, and he's replaced on the throne by his son that wants to kill him. And yet in this moment, David responds with a hope. He's not broken, but he has a a greater hope because his hope is not in being the king of the Israelites. His hope is not in the kingdom that God has given him over Jerusalem. His hope is in a kingdom that is more eternal, a hope that is in a God that is greater than any kingdom this earth could give him. It's hope in a kingdom that is called an upside-down kingdom by C.S. Lewis. It's a kingdom that to lose your life is actually to find it. It's a kingdom that is described in the Beatitudes, the New Testament passage we talked about this morning, where it is a place where the meek shall inherit the earth, where the poor in spirit are assured that theirs is the kingdom of God, and where those who are persecuted for righteousness are assured that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom is the kingdom which David can look to and hope even when all is lost. Even when it looks like everything has fallen apart, he has a greater hope and a kingdom to come. And this is the same hope that all of us have in Christ's name. This is the same hope that allows each of us to proclaim that our financial security is not our shield, but it's God. It allows each of us to proclaim that none of our possessions, none of our cars or our houses or anything to see our glory in. We are only given glory because we actually have the Holy Spirit living in us. God himself is with us every moment. And we're not lifted up by any status or legacy that we're trying to leave behind, but we can glory in the fact that we are lifted up by Christ alone. It is through Christ that we are assured of a greater hope than anything this world could ever offer. And we can be assured that hope despite any moments of destruction and crisis. Through Christ, you are given the ability to respond like David that through your tears, you can look to Christ and know that there is a greater hope. Because while David is walking up the Mount of Olives in tears, he knows there is a greater hope because this is the same place where Christ would march triumphantly into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. This is the same Mount of Olives where while David might march up it, leaving Jerusalem and going to the Mount of Olives crushed in grief, Christ would march from the Mount of Olives back into Jerusalem to be crushed for our iniquities. It's here that Christ submitted to the will of the Father to bear the sins of the world, 
to ransom all of us, including David and including you and me, to bring us back to him. And yet Christ didn't stay on the cross, but he died and rose again, defeated death, and brought all of us back to a greater promise and a greater hope. A greater hope and a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom where God has proclaimed we will be together with him one day. And so when we look to that hope, when we understand what he has done for us, when we understand the promises that are guaranteed to come true through Christ, we can respond even in the midst of suffering, like the Apostle Paul and like David, believing that there is no moment of crisis, that there is no present suffering that it can ever compare to the future glory that is to come through Christ Jesus our Lord. Even in our crisis, we are given opportunities to respond in faith, we're given opportunities to respond in submission, and we're given opportunities for a greater hope. But more importantly that, we are given Christ to make sure that all of these things are fulfilled in us. See, Christ is the one that is given to us by who our faith is established and who our faith is sustained. It is Christ who has shown us what it actually means to submit to the will of the Father, even when it doesn't make sense. And it is Christ who has promised us and sealed us with a hope that can never be taken by anything in this world. Now, as we close this morning, I'm going to say that ultimately I don't know what your crisis looks like. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know how hard your life is right now. I don't know whether you're walking through the death of a loved one, if you're walking through disease or cancer. I don't know if you're walking through marital problems or family issues, parenting struggles that just continue time and time again and nothing ever seems to let up. It might feel when you look like around you that the world is crumbling. Or it might look like in your own life that the weight of the world is causing you to crumble. And in these moments, it is fine and good for us to respond like David, to respond in tears and mourning as we walk up the Mount of Olives. We are given an opportunity to respond with grief, but we are also given an opportunity to respond through our grief in praise, to praise God for what he has already done on that cross, to praise God what he has already done to accomplish everything that we could never accomplish for us. We are given an opportunity through our grief to praise God that he is with us through the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to encourage us, to walk through these trials with us. We have a God that was crushed and suffered the same things. He's not immune to pain. He's not immune to tears. But we can also praise God because we know that there's a better time coming. We know that there's a future that is sealed in Christ's blood for each of us that he is coming once again to establish this kingdom where we will be with him face to face on that day, that it is a kingdom where God will be our God and we will be his people, that it is a day where Christ and God will come and wipe away every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sin, no more crisis, and no more hardship, that we will come in great joy. And for that, we can praise even in the midst of our mourning in this moment. That's what David knew, and that's what we are called into as God's people. That's the opportunity that we are given because of what the Lord has done. And that's what gives us the hope to cry out with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation when he proclaims, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's what we want to cry out this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for an opportunity to open your word and to see the example of David and of Ittai, to see the opportunities that you've given us 
to see how you can come into even intense moments of suffering and grief. That you've given us a greater hope. That you've given us your son to pay for our sins. That you've given us a future that is signed and sealed by your, your own promises. Lord, might we feel your presence this morning. God, might you comfort us and be the encourager that we know you are in your spirit in our lives. That you would be your presence would be felt and walking with us through these times of grief and suffering and hardship in a broken world. God, that we would look to you in the midst of our brokenness, that we would reaffirm our faith that you have something better for us, that we would submit to your will and humbly come before you as your people, and that we would proclaim to the world around us that we have a hope that can never be shaken. We have a hope that can never be taken and that we can cry out for you to establish your kingdom on this earth soon and very soon. God, allow us to sit in that assurance this morning as we praise your name in song. In your holy name we pray, amen.